Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network. We're here today on New Books Genocide Studies and New Books Eastern European Studies. I'm Stephen Siegel, and my guest today is... Dr. Svenja Bethke, who is the author of Dance on the Razor's Edge, Crime and Punishment in the Nazi Ghettos, published by University of Toronto Press 2021. Welcome, Svenja, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you a lot, Stephen, and thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. So um, I'm uh, grateful for your time, and I want to get started really quickly, but first your bio. So um, Svenja Betke is Lecturer in Modern European History and Deputy Director at the Stanley Burton Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Leicester, UK. She works on the history of modern Europe with an emphasis on the Holocaust and Jewish history in a transnational dimension. From 2019 to 2021, she held a Marie Skłodowska Curie Fellowship at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem for her new project, which we'll also hear about clothing, fashion, and nation building in the land of Israel. Recent publications include attempts to take action in a coerced community, petitions to the Jewish Council in the Lotz or Wuch ghetto during World War II, 2020, and a special issue of International Journal for Fashion Studies entitled Clothing and Fashion in Historical Perspective 2019. So our listeners will be familiar with her work both in German and in English, and I'm really happy to see this book come out uh, in English um, with University of Toronto Press. So um, let me start uh, with the very first question, and I, I hope our, our listeners you know, will get an answer because I'm really curious about this too. So could you tell us what, what motivated you initially to pick up this project and write the book? Yes, of course. Uh, yeah, and it is a bit of an interesting story because I hadn't really planned it. I mean, 
I had uh, thought mm -hmm. about continuing with the PhD um, yeah, after my postgraduate studies, but I was more interested initially, or that's what I, what I mainly did during my studies in Soviet history, so I thought more along these lines. Um, but then I took up a job, um, was uh, yeah, for a professor at the university, but it had to do um, with this very specific law, um, I'm not sure many will be familiar with this, but in 2006, um, there was a German law coming out that allowed Holocaust survivors who had survived ghettos and who had worked in ghettos uh, to be able to make pension claims retrospectively. Mm -hmm. And um, what I did, or what the professor for whom I worked did, uh, Professor Frank Gorczewski, um, it was there was a, a big scandal because uh, many of these claims were not, uh, uh, yeah, kind of granted, and um, people uh, had to explain how they worked in the ghettos. And well, it it became clear that um, kind of the idea uh, that was embedded in the law about the working conditions in the ghettos were not really suitable for the situation people had been living in, had been forced to work under. So um, luckily, uh, historians were then asked to provide their perspective on the working conditions in the ghettos during the Second World War and uh, were asked to write um, yeah, pieces of expertise mm -hmm. To get a more like to get a clear understanding, and I was working for this professor, meaning I went through a lot of primary sources, um, yeah, learning right. everyday life in these coerced communities during the Second World War, meaning the ghettos, and I also studied law alongside history. So mm -hmm. um, I see that <laughs> there, there are kind of then all these questions coming up about um, what kind of community are we looking at what kind of course communities are we looking at and how do uh yeah many different themes and aspects that uh we we can look at in every society every community uh, drastically different under these circumstances in the ghettos and combining my interest in law mm -hmm. and legal norms and my interest in history and then the work i did I started to think about this this question, what did this actually mean for ideas about human behavior and how to judge on human behavior, meaning which practices were all of a sudden maybe newly defined as being criminal or which mm -hmm. kind of previous offenses um, yeah, continue to matter and in which way? And um, what did actually happen to enforcing certain uh, yeah, kind of judgments mm -hmm. on human behavior under these circumstances. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's, it's such an interesting self-reflection about this idea of ethics and judgment, and I really want to come back to that. Um, I wonder if you might explain to our readers what kind of thematic structure you decided upon for your book. So um, you have something that you call the legal sphere or the ghetto internal legal sphere, as far as I understand. Um, so how did you arrange the chapters to your book? I know there was a German edition too, um, but maybe you could paint a big picture of that for us. Yeah, of course. Um, 
So, I mean, a bit linked to uh, what I previously said, how I came to the topic, I was, um, yeah, especially at the beginning, looking at, uh, yeah, approaches in um, yeah, legal theory and so on. And I, because I was so much interested in this question, to what extent was this what I call legal sphere specific and different from other societies, I decided to go with a structure that um, yeah, kind of reflects um, many of these institutions that we can see in, in other societies as well. Um, so uh, I kind of, um, well, wh while I'm comparing three different ghetto communities, I decide, decided to have a thematic approach and look at different institutions or even start by asking First of all, how were newly defined offenses and definitions of what criminality was anchored? Mm -hmm. So how were these communicated? So I looked at proclamations. Um, then I look at the so-called Jewish police in all three ghettos. So how were uh, these new definitions then enforced and um, how were these persecuted? Um, and then I look also at internal ghetto courts. So um, which role did these courts fulfill? What kind of power did they have? Uh, which legal norms did they did they use? Um, how were these uh, yeah, kind of court proceedings uh, then uh, also publicized? Um, and which role did these fulfill? And then I also look at, yeah, the kind of penal system uh, in a way exactly I'm yeah. kind of interested in what what kind of punishment was then uh, yeah kind of um, enforced and what were actually the possibilities to enforce ghetto internal punishments um, and in the end because of course it is very important to um, yeah of course on one hand I, I'm, I'm looking at the uh, at the so-called Jewish Council, so the Ghetto Internal Administration, um, but to ask the question, uh, which role did actually the ghetto inhabitants play in all of this and to what extent did they uh, yeah, may also make use of internal institutions, um, what was their view on uh, these internal proceedings and so on. And I look at a few examples where I'm trying to bring together these two very different uh, yeah, kind mm -hmm. of groups in a way. Right. And could you say a word about your sources? So you do have three ghettos and you decided um, on Warsaw, Lotz and Vilna or Wuch and, and Vilnius, right? Um, I, I guess I have a two-part question. First, you know, um, as someone who worked on the Encyclopedia of Camps and Ghettos for many years for the U.S. Holocaust Museum, I'm curious why you chose those three. Um, that's the first part of the question. And, and then really, you know, what drew you to not just the memoirs or, you know, let's say the wealth of secondary literature, but what, what drew you to delve a lot deeper into crime and punishment um, in, in those three situations, in those three ghettos? Mm -hmm. um, yes, I mean, 
before I answer that question, I would just uh, like to add, I mean, I didn't mention when you asked about the structure that, of course, what I'm, what I said about the internal institutions and procedures, um, that my first chapter is actually on Nazi Jewish policy and in a way on German yeah. definition. So just to have kind of the framework. We, we can, we can talk about that. We'll, <laughs> okay. we'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, and um, regarding the sources, um, yeah, why these ghettos? I mean, um, as many will know, I've chosen ghettos, um, where we do already have, uh, yeah, very important research on, uh, yeah, these communities quite often, yeah, these, histories of everyday life um, to some extent. And I chose them for the same reason that we do have more research uh, than, for example, smaller ghettos, which is that there were um, kind of very rich internal ghetto archives that uh, allow us to make use of uh, yeah, internal documentation, um, quite often linked to very comprehensive uh, yeah internal ghetto administration um, that were quite often kept in yeah, secret archives that were gathered by personnel that was employed by the Jewish Council um, and that was then hidden from the Germans, um, which then uh, yeah, allows us today um, to, to make use of, of yeah, these extraordinary primary sources um, that, uh, yeah, on one hand, um, and this brings me to the question: What kind of primary sources I'm I'm, I'm using or have used? Um, is that on one hand we have this uh, yeah comprehensive documentation of uh, institutions and practices um, on the side of the uh, of the Jewish councils, meaning the internal ghetto administration. Um, we also have yeah a lot of exchange because of course everything I'm talking about here can only be seen uh, in the context of uh, yeah, German orders and German intervention to a certain degree. And um, we have a lot of exchange between uh, the German administrative authorities and the ghetto internal authorities. So this is relevant to my, to my topic. And then quite often also uh, yeah, testimonies of ghetto inhabitants that were gathered um, right in these internal archives as well as chronicles that uh, yeah mm-hmm. are very very important um, source when looking at for instance um, yeah incidents that happened uh, criminal cases that were considered worth mentioning by these institutions exactly and 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 I guess you know I'll return to this as well I, I'd love you know I'd love it if you could talk about some of the less popular sources. I mean, people who will read Ringelblum or Spielmann or, you know, Edelmann and so forth that might not know of the richness of a lot of these sources and documents that, that you um, discovered in these archives. And so, you know, I, I'd love it if you were be, um, talking about that for the three ghettos. But, but you know, first, I did want to ask a question about um, these definitions of um, crime and, and punishment. And, and really, I think um, from your first chapter forward, you have a really interesting take on the ghettoization of the population 
and the extent to which, let's say, the legal sphere is is autonomous or pseudo-autonomous, I guess this is an old debate, but maybe you could talk a little bit about how you understand um, the role of, of the Judenrette or, or the Jewish councils within the three ghettos, given the, the relative lack or, or um, let's say, absence of, of autonomy. I don't know if I'm correct about that, but I, I'd love to hear your talk. Your, you talk about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, um, this is uh, yeah really at the core of um, what, what I've looked at, and um, it concerns broader debates, as you've said, on to what extent were the Jewish councils actually um, able to uh, define and then enforce their own take on certain uh, things happening in the ghetto and so on. And um, what I was quite... Um, yeah, surprised by. I mean, of course, we do not have to. Um, yeah, oh, it's not about questioning that um, these were coerced communities. The Jewish councils were uh, forced to take over um, these positions and the role. But nonetheless, um, I don't. I mean, in these earlier debates, they were quite often seen as puppets of the Nazis and so on. But nonetheless, what I discovered when looking at what I call this legal sphere is that um, it was not because the Germans were so generous. Um, mostly it was because they didn't really care or they cared about the ghetto being calm and uh, them being able to enforce whatever they were interested in in in, at the moment. But this did allow to a certain degree internally um, for the Jewish councils to decide how they would go about um, certain institutions, certain procedures and so on. And um, actually, I, I... I would argue that this so-called legal sphere um, is quite representative for a certain room for maneuver and also attempts to decide with a certain autonomy um, how things should be and could be organized, always with the attempt to to avoid the intervention of the Germans, to avoid them uh, coming in the ghetto or um, yeah taking over concerns later on also all these legal procedures and taking out prisoners or um, um, out of the ghetto prisons for example. But um, what what I would say what we see throughout the well from the establishment of the ghettos um, until the very end that. Um, this desperate attempt to trying to make use of uh, yeah scope for action in the ghettos, which was quite often possible, and but it but it changed throughout the years of the existence. Mm-hmm. And and could you talk a little bit about again back to the thematic um, structure of your book, how you you know almost like in a way of concentric circles define this criminality because there are so many different examples of crime, right? So you, I mean, you have border crossing, you have smuggling, you have murder, you have rape. I mean, there are all sorts of examples, trafficking. Um, I mean, how do you conceive of that through the book? And then I guess this is my question about how you decided to lay out your chapters, if you could give our audience maybe an idea of of how you did that. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Um, again, this is, of course, uh, where it was one of the most difficult questions when I first went uh, to the archives. And um, you don't really find these files saying uh, criminal offences uh, and so on. So um, finding a way of getting clarity which actions were seen as criminal and what the consequences were. And I just make a very general point. I mean, my approach, and this is where, yeah, maybe my my legal approach has also came in here, is to say, and it's quite obvious, but there is not an objective definition of what crime is. So every society community right. defines that um yeah, in its own way. But of course, when we look at the ghettos, um, we have to take into account the enforced definitions and orders of the Germans. So um, what, I, what I did was that I first looked um, at the definitions that were like the practices and um, actions uh, that were officially defined as criminal by the Germans, um, and then what the Germans asked the Jewish councils to do about certain offenses. And this is what you just mentioned, yeah, yeah. for example, um, yeah, illegal border crossing, smuggling, and so on. Right. And these are usually the classical. Classical crimes, so-called, right? I mean, those those were also like sort of private, de- deemed private, as far as I understand. Or I mean, how like brawls or, or um, murders mm, or yeah. Let me. I, I, yeah, I, no, go I, ahead. I, I'm sorry yeah, to interrupt. No, no, no. <laughs> go ahead. I, no, maybe I didn't make it clear enough yet. So what I did is that I came up with certain categories that that I. Try, well, that, that I recognize throughout these different ghettos. So on one hand, we have offenses that were officially um, defined by the Germans, and the Germans ordered the Jewish councils to persecute these offenses, and then in some cases also report back to them. Um, so this right. is on one hand the German offenses. Um, secondly, um, I found so many examples where the Jewish councils and their institutions internally defined very unusual practices as criminal. So I came to the second category where I said, apparently the Jewish councils came up with new definitions trying to punish certain behaviors and actions that they deemed as very dangerous for the ghetto community. And Mm -hmm. they deemed them as very dangerous in cases where they thought this could provoke the intervention of the Germans. And I'm talking here really about a broad range of uh, illegal um, production of sweets, illegal production of sausages. Uh, You find these really uh, repeatedly in the primary sources. And then you have to ask why were these, um, yeah, why was this seen as criminal and why, why did the Jewish councils punish these? And then you need to expect, you need to understand first and then to explain that, of course, they justified it by uh, being afraid that uh, diseases may spread if people uh, would produce food at home and would not uh, um, 
comply with uh, hygienic uh, measures that uh, would uh, that w- would be needed. And then knowing that there was knowledge that the Germans thought all the time, uh, yeah, diseases were sp- spread in the ghettos, and that the the spread of diseases may then lead to uh, German intervention and uh, maybe, um, yeah. Um, brutal consequences, uh, the um, yeah, um, relation of the ghetto community. Um, and for each offense that I kind of recognized and that um, came up several times, I always ask myself, what is the justification for this? What was uh, given as a reason why this was punished? And how, mm-hmm. what does this tell us about um, yeah, everyday life under these circumstances? Um, and uh, yeah, un- under this category, we, we have really a broad range of a quite unusual um, criminal yeah, offenses, yeah. I would say. I, I, I mean, I have to say, I'm amazed at, at you know, your attention, like really, really careful and detailed attention to personnel in this Alltagsgeschichte, because... I mean, you do get right into the ghetto talking about not just the changes of the leadership, but looking at, you know, the newspapers like Gazeta Zhidovska or Ghetto Zeitung or, you know, other examples. And I'm really curious as to how, you know, you sort of begin to reconstruct these characters. Maybe you could give an example or two. I mean, the the famous example of Chernyakov, right, and, and his suicide, but... Um, maybe some names that, that our audience might not know. Um, you have librarians and, you know, um, people who involve themselves with um, or functionaries, but are involved with the legal departments. I mean, what, I guess, what attracted you to, to their stories? And then, of course, you know, how did you pursue their prosecution of, of crimes if they were, if they were simple functionaries? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit linked to, well, not a bit. What I what I now said about the change of these legal norms, and early on you also ask for these classical crimes, and I just um, yeah mentioned that, and then I come to the point because I think it's quite relevant that of course what you mention as classic uh, crimes, for instance, um, yeah, there were cases of sexual abuse, there were cases of rape, there were cases of theft. I mean, many cases of theft, um, and. These were also persecuted, but um, in a different way and less and less um, attention was given to these. So when I looked then Mm -hmm. at the personnel, I was very much interested in the background that these people had. What what made them uh, choose um, or sometimes maybe not even choose uh, to pursue a legal profession in the ghettos what was their background where had they studied what had they studied um so to understand what kind of legal norms they were familiar with um and then uh, trying to find out and in some cases for example uh stanislav adler was uh, with the Jewish police in the Warsaw ghetto, but was uh, yeah responsible for thinking about new legal procedures. Um, right. He like we have yeah an extraordinary autobiography uh, written by him where he explains like it's it's so fascinating um, about his motivation to think about how to adjust and to what extent this needs to be adjusted um, under the, the circumstances in the ghetto. And um, so, I mean, 
wherever I could find something about the motivation, about the background um, of these people, and also their reflection on why would legal procedures be needed. And what is so interesting about this context well, of the ghettos is it has so much to do with what they knew about the German plans, what they experienced um, in their everyday mm. life, what they thought would happen. So I think what is That's so interesting... That's a great point. Yeah, about legal norms, it has so much to do with the future in a way. And um, it, it is all about why do we punish someone for something? Because we want to prevent an action or we want to uh, yeah, kind of send a message to the community, this is forbidden. But what, what comes up in the primary sources is also that so many of them were thinking about if we don't punish this, what will people think after the war? How will they, they judge mm. our behavior? So, yeah, this is what I find so fascinating that even in the Vilna ghetto where, um, yeah, the plans of the Germans uh, to systematically murder the ghetto population were, were known almost from the very beginning. And nonetheless, these judges, for example, um, operating in the Vilna ghetto were still thinking about if we survive this, what will people say about the way we acted under these circumstances with regards to punishment of criminal offenses. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Mm -hmm. and, and do you have a good idea of when um, criminals or criminality becomes resistance? Because again, this is sort of a, a big question, yes. right? I mean, it's oh, almost impossible to answer this, but, but given all the files that you looked at and the cases of, let's say, you know, very violent crime, or let's say the cases of, of leniency, um, towards some of those who, who, were, who were prosecuted. I mean, how, how then do you decide what forms of gang behavior or criminality represent resistance? I mean, this, this is a huge issue, you know, for uh, Holocaust historiography, right? But I, I guess I have to ask this because of all the, the work that you did on these three ghettos. I mean, when, when does criminality become a form of resistance? Yeah, it's, I think, one of the most difficult questions to answer because, as you will have seen, that, I mean, I, I discussed this, but, well, let me make uh, at least two points. Um, first of all, again, as much as we have to ask what is defined as criminality, we have to ask what is defined as resistance. 
So, um, of course, there's a big difference about what today in scholarship is defined as resistance when looking back at behavior uh, in the ghettos and what was defined as resistance during the time of the existence of the ghettos. So um, that doesn't make it easier, but... um, where you more but you were referring to this overall question right so yeah i think so if it's a big question but maybe yes. you could break it down if you have a couple of examples of, of this so you have so, so many rich examples of when there is leniency shown for the um, individuals but there are also you know cases including those of sexual violence where people really are prosecuted and there are death penalties which are which are given yeah, I mean, I would first um, look at the context of the ghetto, and I think it can clarify a little bit why I think it's so important to be so kind of exact about which situation are we talking about and what is defined as resistance. And um, where we do have cases that are defined during the existence of the ghetto as resistance, and this means from the perspective of the Jewish council, resistance to their ghetto institutions that they set up, resistance to the Jewish police. And we do also have, um, importantly, in the Vilna ghetto and also in the Warsaw ghetto, cases of armed resistance. So um, interestingly, and this is something because, like, yeah, initially everyone asked, so how did they judge on cases of armed resistance? And as we know, uh, Jewish council heads were deferred drastically in their take on armed resistance. But what becomes quite clear is that these cases hardly come up, for for example, in these court proceedings and so on, that I do think, and this is, of course, relevant for all these primary sources and the question, what did they want to write down? That um, my impression is, and it's also what I uh, yeah could get from, from certain primary sources, that cases of armed resistance that by some Jewish councils were seen as endangering the whole ghetto community because of its danger, um, yeah, the, the, the danger that the Germans may, may intervene, um, do not really appear in these kind of uh, court proceedings or um, like, uh, yeah, when the Jewish police arrested uh, ghetto inhabitants. In the Vilna ghetto, towards the end, it does come up. And uh, Jak- Jakub Gens, as the Jewish council had, gives a number of speeches where he says, from now on, the Jewish uh, police will be asked to persecute uh, cases of, um, of armed resistance and uh, kind of explains why this is uh, so, so important and that he will now take a different take on this. So... This regards the question, what was defined as resistance in, internally in the ghettos? Um, right, right. Later on, and this is then almost more, uh, uh, more about the historiography, um, I mean, we have this whole shift, and I try not to go too much into detail, but um, yeah, luckily, uh, um, new interest in everyday life in the ghetto communities, especially uh, since the 1990s, since we have access to these um, primary sources uh, in many Eastern European archives. Um, All of a sudden, with this kind of very broad definition of 
Jewish resistance as any act that is uh, yeah directed towards uh, German intentions and actions. Um, many many um, yeah examples and uh, themes were all of a sudden seen as resistance against the Nazis, and this is what I can see also with the uh, yeah with criminality um, that smuggling was all all of a sudden seen as resistance to the Nazis' intentions. And uh, we can see this for, for many other um, yeah, criminal yeah. offenses that were then seen as, uh, yeah, this, this was resistance. And I'm not questioning this overall, but I do not think it is uh, specifically helpful because it kind mm -hmm. of blurs our perspective on it. And there were also professionally organized smugglers. I don't say, I mean... If we use this broad definition, uh, yeah, Amida, um, of course, this can be seen as resistance. But I do think what I really try to do is look more at the ghetto context and look at a variety of motivations that led people to behave in very different ways. And uh, mm. yeah, not uh, quickly jump to just saying, yeah, looking from back from right. today with what we know, this was all resistance. Yeah, and 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 I, I mean, I like your answer to that. I remember Golchevsky had a, the Lebensvelt Ghetto Project. Um, you know, maybe it was ten years ago or fifteen years ago now. But I, the importance of reconstructing the norms and let's say historical context for. Um, decisions when they're made by legal personnel and, and then in a functionary capacity, I think is exceptionally important. Um, and and that, that leads me to another question, which I think is a really great and big point in your book. And, and it's about this continuity versus rupture with, you know, older models, let's say not just in interwar Poland, but older models of, of Jewish courts, in maybe even all the way back to the Piewsza Rzeczpospolita, to the first Polish-Lithuanian Republic. I wonder if you could say a little bit about that in, insofar as you see, you know, both continuity and, and rupture among um, the Jewish judges and, and courts and, and legal practices and behaviors within the ghettos. Yes, of course. And uh, yeah, I agree. <laughs> this is a very important point. And um, what is quite helpful here is, again, the question, what did the legal personnel see as a continuity and as a rupture? And I think looking at this theme of continuity, um, initially, because many of these uh, people then working in these legal roles but the first point of continuity was their um their education and their background and what they were used to do so um quite often they they yeah were um asked to function in certain roles uh for example as a judge because they they had studied law and so on but um what is quite obvious, and this is where this comparison between these three ghettos um, is quite useful, that I always try to find out at what point did the legal personnel or also the Jewish councils um, have a sense of this is completely different what we are facing here. I mean, of course, it was clear from the beginning, but when did this kind of translate to we have to do things differently? And um, 
what is quite interesting that even in the Vilna ghetto, where I said what was quite clear from what uh, people yeah, experienced from the very beginning, that it was very unlikely that um, yeah, all of the ghetto community would, would survive, if anyone, and um, that nonetheless these uh, courts were set up and the first uh, attempt to establish certain norms was to make use of pre-war legal norms. But then there was mm -hmm. a, another meeting that was called in where I think after a few weeks they said, this doesn't work and we are operating under uh, yeah, emergencies, uh, under an emergency situation and we cannot apply this. And uh, so then this shifted and mm. there was much more flexibility in the way these norms were then used. Um, and we see the same in, uh, for example, in the Lot Ghetto, um, but we have a longer period initially where there were still attempts to, to make use of uh, yeah, pre-war legal norms, but um, it took a bit longer. And of course, it, it, well, they were established earlier, but there as well, it was kind of a topic of discussions. Um, to what extent do we have a continuity? Can we make use of our knowledge? And when do we have to recognize that this doesn't work and that we have to operate differently? Mm -hmm. and, and could you say, you know, again, with the scholarship, there's a lot that had been written about this so-called heightened Jewish morality. I, I mean, I know, you know, one of the one of the things you're doing is complicating that picture, but I guess, you know, how do you complicate that picture by studying behavioral patterns? And, and here I have in mind, you know, very serious crimes, um, especially sexual crimes that go unprosecuted. So, you know, when, when we're dealing with, with crimes among members of the ghetto, what, you know, how do you read this sort of notion that persists so often among survivors in their accounts after the war? Yeah, I mean, of course it is, um, yeah, it's, it, it, this is very relevant to all of what I'm doing and I'm, I'm starting also with that in, in my introduction that um, my intention is not to come to a conclusion how much criminality there was <laughs> and my, uh, my, my, my intention is not to say, um, yeah, this uh, look all these awful things happen in the ghetto. What I'm trying to do is move away from this idea that, I mean, and this goes back to, first of all, recognizing that these were coerced communities um, with people defined as Jewish by the Nazis. Um, so we have very heterogeneous communities under these, uh, yeah, horrible mm. circumstances and all kinds of human behaviors occurred under these circumstances. And this is the point I want to make that um, then the question is, which of these behaviors were seen as criminal by whom? And um, well, because you brought up this, this aspect of um, yeah, the sexual uh, abuse and, and rape and what, the the only yeah. thing I want to show here is that um, I mean this is kind of a classical crime that we well we all 
would agree, yes, this is a serious crime. This should need, uh, have to be persecuted. And um, this is what, what we are used to. But what I try to show is that um, priorities shifted um, under the circumstances in the ghettos. And I'm not judging if this is good or bad. I'm just trying to explain why right. um, certain priorities were set when all of a sudden these maybe pre-war classical uh, offenses that we are familiar with um, or that people also in the ghetto initially were familiar with um, became less important because they were maybe dangerous for an individual but not for the whole ghetto community. And this is one of the main points I'm making that um, there was yeah more and more emphasis on actions that could endanger the whole ghetto community in comparison to those more classical crimes uh, that were concerning individuals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I, you know, you talk about this, I think at great length in the conclusion with grit, with green gauss um, and, and the height, the heightened morality idea. Um, and, you know, and I'm not just thinking about sexual crimes either, but also the history of denunciations. And <laughs> I mean, that that's so problematic. And, and, you know, I wonder if you might say something about that in the three ghettos, because that also is a changing relationship and really dependent on context. And then it's remembered in very different ways by, by again, by those who are survivors. So, I mean, how, how do you read that, you know, level of improvisation um, mm -hmm. through the through the context of, of the three ghettos that you study. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean maybe this is um an occasion to look a bit more at like yeah this theme of like the ordinary ghetto inhabitants, although of course this um yeah was happening across all different segments of the ghetto communities. But I, I looked at the number of cases where um yeah, where ghetto inhabitants went to the Jewish police station and said, my neighbor has stolen this from me, or I have seen someone running around with uh, the shoes that I bought for my daughter, um, and please, can you persecute this person? Or where it comes to court proceedings, and it's quite clear that this is the consequence of someone yeah, denunciating someone or yeah, just telling someone about it, and then this, this comes up. And here again... Um, what I want to make clear is that uh, what motivated people under these circumstances um, has to be seen in this context of yeah suffering, uh, yeah these circumstances in the ghettos with hunger, with uh, wanting to take revenge in some cases, which is also a theme in some court proceedings, um, and. Here, here again, it's not about it's not about saying these things didn't occur, and it's also not about saying oh it's important. And it, it's a very as I said, heterogeneous community under coerced circumstances facing these uh, yeah unbearable situations. And then one way of uh, trying to um, to end certain uh, problems was maybe seen in making use of institutions that existed and importantly, uh, especially in the Lodz ghetto with uh, Mordechai Chaim Umkowski as the Jewish council had, this was also quite often encouraged by the Jewish councils um, and uh, they were encouraging people to report these newly defined criminal offenses um, and yeah, it's important to, to, to see that people did make use of these possibilities.
Mm-hmm. And, and I guess, you know, my last question for you, because you have so many languages, <laughs> I mean, you, you've really, you know, I, again, this is why people have to read the book. A, a podcast can't possibly capture, you know, everything. Um, but you, you know, you've got sources in, in Polish and German and Yiddish, and I think some Hebrew as well and, and other languages. I, I'm wondering if you might, you know, talk a bit about future research and what, you know, what could be done further on, on some of the ghettos like Shaoliai and, and maybe in the ones in Lithuania that are not in your book. Um, given all of your languages and especially the Polish sources that you've looked at, um, what things might you might you suggest to, for, to future um, historians or others who might take an interest in, in looking at um, in looking at your work and the history of the ghettos and the Holocaust? Mm. Yeah, there, there are many, many things that should be done. And I mean, for example, starting um, with these kind of very important topics that are like the context of my book, but where I realized there isn't much research on it. For example, looking at the German definitions, um, uh, first of all, to understand that they were also highly improvised and theory and practice were clashing all of the time. So how how could the Jewish councils make sense of this if they didn't know what what the Germans would be interested in or not? So uh, systematically looking, first of all, um, at uh, yeah these also new definitions by the German occupying forces is very important. And luckily, I have a PhD student now, Judith Fucker, who is um, writing a oh, thesis on the topic. So, Fabulous. Um, yeah, I very much uh, look forward to her finishing that project. Um, and yeah, she's doing really interesting work on German courts in uh, occupied um, Poland. So that is one thing. And then, for example, I mean, you mentioned other ghettos. And as we have clarified, I worked on large ghetto communities. Of course, it would be very uh, important to look at smaller ghettos as well as, as you said, ghettos in other uh, occupied territories. And especially with smaller ghettos, this question of... um, like people knowing each other and uh, other kinds of yes. relationships. I was going to ask about yeah. that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And of course, for, um, I mean, what I know and what I've seen is, of course, there were not institutions comparable to what I've seen in these larger ghetto communities. But then how did people go about, um, yeah, kind of deciding in quarrels that people had with their neighbor, for example. So these more improvised, informal ways of dealing with internal um, problems would be very interesting. And also something that I, well, I've I've done it, I've given one paper on that at a conference once, but it's certainly something where we, I would hope to see more research on is also this question of, um, oral history testimonies looking back at what happened in the ghettos and how uh, certain actions were then reconsidered and rephrased depending on what after the war was seen as okay it's okay that I've done this or this is not okay that I've done it so 
at what point mm -hmm. did people talk about what they did as resistance because uh, kind of the perception mm -hmm. after mm -hmm. the, the war shifted or um, what did they maybe highlight what others did uh, because um, there was a very yeah again new new definitions of what would be would be seen as this was okay or not okay which then quite often meant this was seen as uh, yeah um, yeah morally okay or not <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, it's so it's hard to do this as a historian, because then you're getting into, you know, the intimacy of violence, right? Yeah. I mean, it, relationships among people who know each other, I mean, either, you know, within the ghetto, or maybe even in, in pre-war contexts, I guess, really hard to read, you know, through court documents from the, the Lord's special court to the criminal commissariat and find, you know, who might have known another person, but... Um, I'm really intrigued by how you managed to pull all of this off, covering both the penal system and the, you know, the primary and secondary sources that you look at. So um, thank you for that. And maybe now you could talk about your current research since you worked on this book for so many years. I understand that you're working on clothing and, and fashion. Could you say a little bit about that and your other projects? Yes, so I, uh, yeah, I have a new project um, that will hopefully, well, it, it will become my second book, and um, yeah, geographically and thematically, um, it's a it's a drastic change. So I'm interested in the influence of Eastern European and German immigrants to. Eretz Israel, so that first bit, um, Mandate Palestine, and then Israel. Um, and their influence in anchoring certain ideals of uh, clothing and then their influence in uh, yeah, the emergence of a textile industry uh, during this time. And I'm asking the overall question uh, what this has to do with nation building, which role the idea of a certain way of dressing, and there were many different ideas of how one should dress, played in this kind of process of, uh, nation building since uh, the 1880s, um, so which large-scale large Jewish uh, immigration starting in the region and then until the foundation of the Israeli state in 1948, which fell together with the kind of, yeah, slowly the, the emergence of a textile uh, industry mm -hmm. in the region. And would you and would you recommend any particular authors either on the new subject of your research or or on this current book on um, on the history of the ghettos and um, maybe our listeners you know they always ask me <laughs> to, to to ask authors if you could possibly su suggest other books to read. Yeah, I mean it's really um, interesting because um, I mean I've been working on on this book uh, for so many years, and um, at the same time, colleagues of mine have been working on related topics. And uh, you, you will certainly know, but it's important to mention that I think there are now two uh, books, and we we did our research at about the same time. So uh, Katarzyna Persson's book on the Warsaw Ghetto Police. Um, yeah, it's a colleague of mine, uh, and I would uh, highly recommend her book. Um, I read it. Uh, she um, allowed me to read the manuscript. <laughs> so um, mm -hmm. this is uh, kind of looking more at one institution I looked at as well and what she does. And, uh, well, in my introduction, I say, well, there's so, so little on the perspective of, like, 
the people working, for instance, in the Jewish police and also moving away from this image of the evil ghetto police. And she is one right. of the, uh, yeah, yeah, a few ones who has looked at it in a very different way and gives a fresh perspective to this. Um, and it's, yeah, in many ways related to what I've done, um, but she focuses on the Jewish police in the Warsaw Ghetto. And then there's also Anaikova's book, The Last Ghetto on the, uh, Theresienstadt ghetto, which also, I mean, it's on different ghetto and she has uh, this everyday life approach, but I think where um, our books are uh, similar in a way in, in the approaches looking at these communities as heterogeneous com communities, coerced communities in which uh, yes. themes that we know of for other communities took very specific forms. Um, but moving away from this idea of this was a Jewish community and everything, yeah, was <laughs> mm -hmm. fine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've had I've had Anna on the on the podcast, and I will have Kasha as well, uh, oh, hopefully yeah. in, in May. So, and and you know, I'm really looking forward to your new work. So, I wanted to thank you, you know, for taking the time to to join me uh, in conversation. This is Stephen Siegel. We have been speaking with Dr. Svenja Bethke, who is the author of Dance on the Razor's Edge, Crime and Punishment in the Nazi Ghettos, a new book published by University of Toronto Press 2021. I want to congratulate you on this wonderful book. And thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. And for the New Books Network and New Books in Genocide Studies and New Books in Eastern European Studies, as well as New Books in Jewish Studies, this is Stephen Siegel. Until next time. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.